Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast informs, educates, and illuminates the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, let's welcome Dean Lewis, professional engineer and senior project manager at DCI Engineers. Dean developed unparalleled project experience in prefabrication modular and mass timber structure. He quickly grew into a leadership role under the guidance of principals and associates. He's also the subject of a feature article in the San Francisco Business Journal for his perspective on how mass timber is revolutionizing the building industry. For more information, feel free to visit dci-engineers.com. Again, dci-engineers.com. Dot com. Hello, Dean. Welcome. Thank you for being on the Modern Architect Show. We're honored. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me here. I'm a huge fan, and yeah, I know all the past guests that you've had, so I got big shoes to fill. <laughs> You'll definitely do that, Dean. Glad to have you here. Dean, can you share with us, as we talked in the in our so-called green room, some early inspiration or inspirations, if you will, you know, something that galvanizing moment or moments in your life, preferably you know, years ago where you can see what yourself, what you're doing now and how you're doing it and how like it all kind of makes sense in a way. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it definitely wasn't a singular moment kind of born into a family where my grandfather is an architect. And then my father is a contractor actually been building homes in Seattle area for over 30 years. And just ever since I was little, you know, he'd let me out on the job site and I was little, I was able to pick up, you know, nails on the job site or little wood blocks. And then I got a little bit bigger and it was, you know, carry the plywood or carry the jip and then carry the, mix the concrete. And it just kind of evolved. But through that process, just seeing the buildings being built and then from my grandfather's perspective, the design and actually creating something, I thought that was always the coolest thing is just being able to actually create something from a 2D back then dimension and create something in full life and be able to walk into a full-scale building and yeah know that you had built that or designed that is I think there's nothing quite as fulfilling as that yeah so this obviously this happened almost probably daily in your life at some level at some level yeah Yeah. in the summers when I was out of school yeah (laughs) nice so you see that and uh, again we shared uh, before we came on air that all of our guests What's really common about them, other than being uh, as successful in their respective field, is 
there's a, a level of fulfillment with everyone. Can you share with uh, your audience today, you know, what fulfillment means to you in, in your profession? Absolutely. Yeah, I, and I definitely agree with that because I think that's the hardest part for some people sometimes in life is just to find what makes them passionate and what fills their needs. And I guess for me, it's just a culmination of experiences, you know, going through, you know, childhood and then going into college. And I think probably the one key moment for me, my inspiration was probably back in 2008, the recession hit, had to go back into master's school at Washington State University. And I was privileged enough to be in a class with Professor Dr. Dan Dolan. And one of the projects was to look at a research project, which in short was this eight-story full-scale Mastermer building that was on the largest shake table in Japan. And they shook it through some of the largest earthquakes we had on record. And then afterwards, there was almost no damage. And they actually deconstructed the structure, used those same mass timber panels, which were CLT, and then they constructed a building in Italy. And I saw that and I was just like, it was a moment where I was absolutely fascinated. And from then on, that's what I was just curious about, interested in. And so I think, you know, just following those pursuits and it just galvanizes your your everyday sure. juice for what you get, you want to do. As long as you get your needs met and just being growth orientated, I think that's the biggest thing instead of goal orientated. I like that. Say that again. Being growth orientated instead of uh, goal orientated. You've heard it here first. That's really good. You can coin that phrase. <laughs> there's, there's some patent attorneys up the way. <laughs> well, that's great. So you are obviously fu fulfilling, you know, what you like. It, it sounds like it's almost like a, a real passion too. Not just a, a job and not the, just that mass timber is being uh, much more recognized. Would you think it's at a tipping point? That's a good question because like mass timber, prefabrication, modular, kind of all the hot terms in the construction industry right, right now. Definitely disruptors and everyone's talking about them. But if people don't remember back in 2008 prior to the recession, um, there was a lot of these same companies that were coming on board. Um, some of the re my relatives actually invested in them. And then 2008, and yeah, they lost a lot of money. And a lot of these companies, you know, went under. And so my fear is that some of that may happen again, but there's a lot of investment that's going into these companies. I'm sure people have read the headlines, and so the hope is that some of these companies are going to be able to survive. They'll be successful, and as they need to be as our industry changes. Um, I think it is at a tipping point, though, especially the biggest thing is probably the new codes. The building codes have kind of held us back for a long time. And it's just kind of amazing in the past few years, even the development that we've had and to now have essentially in the 2021 code, we will be able to build buildings up to 18 stories in mass timber. Really? Yeah. It's pretty amazing to see the codes change that much because I know people say that, you know, jurisdictionally, that's what the holdup is. It's our building codes and for them to be that progressive. And it, it wasn't easy. There was a lot of work done by some key individuals. And they got it passed. So it's huge movement, I think. Excellent. Charlotte, our audio engineer, has a question. Well, yes, I'm just your humble audio engineer, and I'm outside the built environment lingo. So define for me and the rest of our guests that are like me, define mass timber. Absolutely. And it's it gets convoluted because there's the building code language of heavy timber, which actually has a codified definition, and they're actually working on a new definition in the new code for to quantify mass timber. Because if you currently look under the code, that's essentially what mass timber is, is the definition for heavy timber is a, a large section of timber. So for instance, for a floor, it has to be over four inches thick, or for like a glue lamb 
or a beam. It has to be a certain dimension. And if it's a large enough dimension, it qualifies as mass timber. And that's essentially the easiest way, I think, to quantify it. So just the vernacular mass timber, I'm saying I'm in my house and there's something that's like a structural piece or or a floor or maybe the whole the whole house is made from timber and it's all standing and it's going to withstand earthquakes. That's mass timber? Possibly. Um, <laughs> most houses, you know, they, they u- utilize traditional light frame construction, which is, you know, nominal two by fours or two by sixes that are spaced at 16 inches on center. Okay, that's not mass timber. That's, yeah, traditional light frame construction. Okay, so, light frame yeah. versus mass. Yeah, and um, so mass timber, yeah, you'd have a solid panel, you know, four inches thick, and this panel's eight feet wide and up to 60 feet long, and you can make walls, floors, roofs, everything with it, and it's a solid section of timber. Well, short of a fire, how long will that last? Hundreds of years or 50 or what? Depending on how you design it. I mean, there's pagodas in Japan that are over 600 years old. So it's really, if it's designed properly, if it's maintained properly, you know, if you're protecting it from the elements and proper enclosures and interfaces are designed for waterproofing, it can definitely last. Wow, that's really exciting. Thank you so much, Tom, for inviting him on your show. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know all this. Keep Y'all carry on. <laughs> Thanks, Charlotte. So can you share some recent projects, Dean, that you're, uh, you don't have to name companies or, or, or people, but share some recent projects that you're working with or working on? Absolutely. And I, I mean, I guess that's the other thing for Mass Timber is Mass Timber has been done for quite a while. Like our offices in Montana have done like the Glacier National Park and Yellowstone. So those old lodges that are the huge logs that are used for timber buildings. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially that's mass timber, but it's not quite as sustainable, right? El Tavar at Grand Canyon. Exactly. That's mass timber. How exactly. exciting. <laughs> but you can't find, you know, huge old growth trees that have these two foot diameters anymore. So you got to, you know, take those same two by fours or two by sixes, which are found in trees that are eight inches diameter to 14 inches diameter and create those to get your two by fours, two by sixes, and then create these larger timber elements to then construct these buildings. And so that's what is kind of going on nowadays. So we have like these old traditional mass timber buildings, but in the past two years, our company with over 14 offices kind of across the states, it's kind of interesting because we've seen different building sectors, different product types, essentially over 40 mass timber projects. So, um, and a lot of different, you know, office, we've done churches, residential, the main focus here in the Bay Area is obviously residential. Residential is the hot topic with, you know, the housing shortage and the labor strain that we have. So that's where we're kind of focused right now in the Bay Area for that market. Is there an he- adhesive technology that goes along with this? Or Absolutely. Actually, the adhesive technology, I mean, Glulam is over, it's almost a century old. And it's really the adhesive technology that's advanced to, I mean, the, the glue essentially bonds to the DNA of the wood, the wood fiber. And the, the glue is actually stronger than the wood itself. So I can build the Eiffel Tower out of mass timber? Hypothetically, yes. <laughs> yes. And when you say hypothetically, does that mean just because it has yet to be done? Or well, hypothetically as in, no, we, if we really wanted to? All that separates us from then and now is time and energy. I mean, it just really? takes a lot of money and it would take, you know, the right team to get on board. I mean, that's... That's my honest belief is that with the right team and the right resources, you can accomplish anything. Yeah. How about an iconic, I guess, obviously the architect would do that and the uh, the owners would decide to do it, but an iconic building that uses mass timber. Have you Are you doing that or is, has anyone put anything like that together to kind of call attention and uh, really get 
get to again past that tipping point. I would do a cheap pun for DCI engineers because right. I definitely need to. I guess uh, the the bullet center is definitely worthy of it, though. Um, the bullet center is a ah, so y'all did building. the bullet center. We did, yeah. Back in 2008, it was designed and constructed in 2010. So at the depths of the recession, but even around then, it was around 350 dollars per square foot to construct that building, and that building is designed to last for over 250 years. Oh. And it's an award-winning sustainability building with Dennis. What's Dennis's last name? Oh, he was the yes. original uh, Earth Day of Bullet Foundation. Yeah. Oh man, it's got Dennis. Dennis Hayes. Yes, Dennis really? Hayes. Yes. Yep. Wow. Somebody else you should invite on your show, by the way. <laughs> Dennis would be great. I, I toured the Bullet Center with him, and I thought I knew the Bullet Center, and he just he astounded me. That's probably oh, really? another galvanizing <laughs> moment for sustainability, and yeah. Because everybody needs to Google the Bullet Foundation and the Bullet Center. Yeah. That, it is a game changer. I was I heard him in a presentation. Yep. And it changed my whole awareness and definition of sustainability because of the materials themselves. That they're not, if your building and your design is not designed to last as long as Cambridge University for Stanford, for example, you know, is mm-hmm. there were 800 years. That's sustainability. Right. Yeah. And exactly. And the thing that was crazy about that building when it opened, no one expected the amount of popularity that it had. I mean, there was a row of people three blocks long standing in line to tour a building. I mean, when does that happen? Yeah. It's like a rock concert. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we had staff that had to go and help provide tours and all this stuff. And it was, it was just, yeah, it was really. So you're the, you're the, DCI was the engineering firm behind the Bullet Center. Was, yes. That is exciting. So. How do you do this, Tom Duro? You get all these people in here like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? They're, we're very fortunate. You know, we have terrific guests and they've doing a lot of great... Okay, now I'm bowing out of your interview now. No, no, <laughs> you've got something to offer. We want to hear, that's for sure. You know how that uh, how that goes. Uh, Dean, also, you know, what other, um, like, and we're going to reach a little bit and think five, ten years from now, mm-hmm. how, you know, what will it become almost, uh, I don't want to say normal, but just, just more of a mainstay in product and building material. Absolutely. I mean, okay. I, it's it's hard for me to say because the Bay Area, I mean, you look at the Bay Area and we have all the, the tech influence. And so we everyone's trying to be innovative. Plus, you have the constraints on the industry as well with labor and supplies and cost of construction. And so now developers are kind of looking for these new ways to build buildings. And so it's only a matter of time before these problems start to propagate to other cities. And it kind of already has. And so as soon as we can prove that the price comes down, and there's okay. a lot of factors to that. There's a supply chain that's still growing. The codes are going to change. People are going to get more familiar with it. Jurisdictions, to building departments will be able to code, you know, read the code language a little bit easier when they're looking at these buildings. Inspectors will know what to inspect. And so as time progresses, it will definitely become more feasible. And you look at other countries like the UK, Australia, a lot of the Scandinavian countries, these buildings are standard operating procedure for them. And there's nothing new. The one thing that we have now in the States is the 18-story allowment because our code is prescriptive. It's like a cookbook. Other countries, it's more design-based or you have to essentially prove your design to the building department. So the the fact that we have an 18-story solution that's a codified solution is is beyond a lot of other municipalities. So yeah. it'll be it'll be really cool. Was that move started with legislation? It was. Okay. It was I think because there's obviously a focus on sustainability and people are, you know, concerned about I mean, there's only enough concrete in the world, there's only <laughs> enough steel in the world. What is the only renewable resource that we build with? And I 
you know, you think 10 to 20 years from now, what are we going to be doing? And if, you know, we're looking at resources that are futile, I mean, it's, it's kind of silly. Right? Yes. So I think there's a push. I mean, the U.S. Department of Agriculture provides a lot of funding. They did a competition, you know, I think four years ago now, where they offered $3 million of funding to a team to design a taller timber structure. You know, that type of investment is coming you know, federally. Um, there's other investments that are happening at the state level. So it all, yeah, there's definitely a push kind of at, at all levels, I think, to get these buildings into the forefront. Yeah. And you're obviously all in. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm all in, but I, there, there's, you know, we just got to, Michael Green said it one time, and I really like the way he said it. He said, uh, we got to change our diet. You know, we can't uh-huh. be all concrete or con- all steel. We have to change our diet and, you know, eat a little bit more veggies, you know, maybe (laughs) some tofu is not that bad, but, you know, yeah, change our diet a little bit. You got to do that. So other projects, you know, are people coming to you for advice, wisdom, experience in working with uh, Mass Timber outside of, say, even the U.S.? Uh, outside of the U.S. a little bit. Yeah, okay. other countries or are interested. Or let's say the U.S. Let's just stay with you. And, and even yeah. in the U.S., because there's other, I guess we do a lot of other work. We do, we definitely do mass timber, but we also do a lot of different prefabricated technologies. We work with a lot of different firms, you know, Bone, Connextech, Prescient Systems. Then there's prefabricated wood companies that we work with. Essentially a kit apart system, you know, you, you have the walls come as a piece, the roof comes as a piece, the floor comes as a piece. You got to connect all of them like Legos. We help develop our own system, SLI, Sustainable Living Innovations. Oh, um, so your own process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which was that a necessity, desire? It was actually, so Collins Warman, the architect up in Seattle, and they, they wanted to develop their own system because they saw the advantages of having, you know, a system that could go together quickly, use less, have all the MEP systems integrated with the floor, just a more efficient building from an energy standpoint. And we also designed the building to withstand fire event. So just a really resilient building and energy efficient and goes up pretty quick. So um, there's those proprietary systems. And then obviously we work with uh, a lot of the modular mm-hmm. factory suppliers. And there's that's kind of where I think things are moving because you see a lot of these systems that are now trying to be developed by you know, actual developers. Developers are trying to get their own systems. And there's also systems that are being developed by these vertically integrated factories. You got Rad Urban, you got the shipping container game that's mm-hmm. coming on. You've got Z Modular that's trying to come in as well. So there's a lot of, it's good because there's a lot of different systems now. It's not just one supplier. The supply chain is becoming a little bit more plush. Yeah. It sounds, do you prefer it? Obviously you do. And why do you prefer that you're not really, you're not threatened by all of them? No, we try, and we try and work from all with all of them, okay. which is, I think, great because that's the way our firm has always been. We're, we're very flexible. Obviously, we in certain offices, there's business relationships that we, we prefer if we have a good working relationship, but we're always open. We're always flexible, and we learn from each project or each you know type of construction, and we apply those things that we learn into every project if we can because every system has advantages, and there's also disadvantages. Yeah. Can you share with us um, a project that was uh, difficult to be at the beginning? Uh, probably have a lot of them, but in particular, one, one that was difficult at the beginning and then it just turned out like glorious. Oof, man. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, I okay. can't get in trouble, but they're also going to get some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, possibly one example I'll give was uh, a project that we did in Berkeley. And we it was a modular project and it was very challenging and 
It was challenging because it had never been done before, but we had a really great team. We had Pancal Construction, Lowney Architects, and we was working for Panoramic Interests, and we were really trying to do something. It was steel modular in a seismic zone in Berkeley, some, somewhat of a tough jurisdiction. And so Jeff Brink, our principal, and Justin Bentner, um, associate were leading it and then I came in and tried to take it through construction <sighs> and uh, we had coordination with the design team to you know just the logistics of getting these steel containers to you know the Bay Area and then getting them to Berkeley and then making sure everything was you know within a three millimeter tolerance oh. so and then having <coughs> solutions on site to make sure that if it was installed incorrectly we could you know switch things out or change a connection and you know, on the phone with people from the UK, on the phone with people in China and all over the world, you know, at all times, odd times in the morning to make it work. But then, you know, it finally went up and went together relatively smooth. So proud of that one. Yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. This is The Modern Architect in KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. 2019 marks the centennial of Stanford's Green Library. Jane Stanford's grand plan for the library in the early 1900s was based on her determination that the university bearing her son's name not only serve the intellectual pursuits of its current faculty and students, but also those of future scholars. This is at the core of how Stanford Libraries collects and develops digital research tools and services today. If you're on campus, you're invited always to go and visit the Green Library. Or if you are not on campus, you can always go to uh, library.stanford.edu. We're talking today with Dean Lewis, professional engineer and senior project manager at DCI Engineers. For more information, feel free to visit dci-engineers.com. Again, dci-engineers.com. Dean, with the... uh, architecture and construction business constantly evolving what's changed in your experience over the last say three or four years i'm sure a lot but you know anything in particular that you can say has kind of changed and evolved absolutely definitely the process in which we're designing buildings you know instead of the basic design bid build things are becoming uh, more design build Uh, teams are more integrated and part of that process also is facilitated by, you know, our modeling and what we're doing in our design. Um, I remember, you know, when I first started, Revit was very new. We weren't really utilizing it to its fullest capacity. We were just kind of, you know, getting elevations in and the details were all faked. And, you know, now we're getting to the point where everything is what we call live. So the detail is real. So if you cut a section or you look at a model in 3D, that's the actual detail. You can't fake it. And it, it creates a lot more collaboration because everyone's aware. Um, we do a lot more clash detection, which can be painful, but then the project goes smooth out in the field. So I think just the, the overall process that we we do in our design has changed a lot in the past three to four years. Yeah. You do public speaking as well, correct? I do some public yeah. speaking a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Share, share with us some of the upcoming ones. I know uh, that you're aware of the Cirraclad. Cirraclad coming up yeah. uh, July um, July 12th, I believe, or July 9th. Sorry, July 9th. And uh, that's the most recent one. They'll be doing an AIA seminar um, the following week. And uh, really concentrated right now, actually, on getting the codes. Essentially, here in California, we don't have... uh, Washington and Oregon have adopted the new 2021 codes for the mass timber provisions. And 
been tapped to try and help with that process. So that'll be got to cut the speaking for a little bit Whoa. and try and yeah. How is get it California though, when, when you speed. do that though? You know, what's what's the response been when you do uh, when you do speak to uh, audiences? It's been pretty good. You know, you, you can't make everyone happy. I think it's it's more of just, it's not force-feeding people. It's just letting them know that, hey, there's other options out there. You know, obviously I'm, I'm kind of being known as the timber guy, but like I said before, we do steel modular, do concrete buildings all the time. And so, yeah, you're just letting people know what their options are and letting them decide. Yeah. Speaking of letting them decide, and you talked about a lot more collaboration. Do you, you think there's more collaboration now than, say, four or five years ago? For me, definitely. You know, started in Spokane, then went to Seattle for a couple of years and then been in the Bay Area for a few years now. And I think the Bay Area, just because of the constraints, it's almost like a catharsis that's happened where developers are trying to get a project to price out. And so they bring us in from the very beginning. I mean, even before there's sketches and we'll work with them to look at a site, talk about the feasibility from a high level. We never did that, you know, three or four years ago. We did it on some projects, but, I mean, we're coming to the point where we're doing that on a lot of projects to try and help them out. Helping out with master plans like Yerba Buena, Treasure Island, stuff like that. Trying to just solve things before they even get into the design phase and become issues. Do you think that's happened because it had to happen, the law, or just, uh, you know, people evolve? I think just the market and okay. developers knowing that, you know, we can provide advice for a relatively good, you know, return on investment because, you know, we're going to help you solve a problem before, you know, you get your entitlements and you go down the road and all of a sudden you realize, ooh, we're going to be on piles and that's an extra, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for our project or possibly more. And yeah. we should have thought about, you know, the easement that we need from that adjacent building or the underpinning or whatever it is. Yeah. I, li- I like that you brought that up. There's just a... St- I think it's an axiom a bit, but it's a bit of a story. Is this, is a, a brain surgeon, you know, the surgery for a brain surgery is, you know, six figures higher or higher. But the actual instruments used for the surgery are, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars. So you have a blade and a scalpel that may be a few hundred dollars. And a surgery process, it's like 100000 basically it's your life, the rest of your life. How about looking at that in the built environment as well as it's not so much just the tools that you're using, but it's the knowledge and the expertise and the value. What's your thought on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's becoming to the point, I think it's, I mean, you just got me thinking here about, you know, the future of materials. Because <laughs> right. Like, right now, labor is really expensive, right, Sure. in our market. But if you look at other markets around the world, labor is relatively cheap, and it's actually materials that are expensive. And I think in the future we'll see that shift, and it'll become, you know, people are going to have to work a lot smarter and become of, think of better ways like prefab or modular or whatever it is to reduce the amount of, you know, materials because labor will, because we're going through these changes, probably become you know, less of um, an inhibitance to projects going forward. There'll be more of a focus on, you know, materials and how we effectively use them and are we resourceful, are we using, you know, renewable materials or not, and yeah. Yeah. Do you ever turn it off, Dean? Like, what I mean by that is, uh, <laughs> are you constantly thinking, even though you're working, and, and I'm sure you work hard, does it... Even on your time off, supposedly time off, are you still thinking of ways to improve or 
Yeah, just ways to improve. Because it doesn't sound like you really shut it off at some level. And if I'm wrong, you know, say, hey, you know what? No, you're wrong. I do shut it off. I like to kayak. I like to shut it off sometimes, okay. you know, go hiking in Yosemite or something like okay. that. But uh, the wife will definitely tell you that it's it's on a lot. Okay. Um, <laughs> there it is. But I think that's, you know, what I like about my career choice and everything. It's the built environment is all around us. And whether it's political and it's a housing issue or, you know, it's a sustainability and environment issue or it's, you know, actually providing, you know, a place for someone to reside in their home or office. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of everywhere we are, you know, housing is a, the roof oh, yeah. overhead's a main need for humanity. So it's kind of always there. And Dean, of course, if you're out hiking, you're right there with the trees. That's true. That's true. And so, Dean, I want to ask you, do you all, especially since you all did the engineering for the Bullet Foundation, what do you all think of the term circularity? Do you all have a definition of that? I mean, you are an exceedingly near-perfect example of circularity in terms of materials use. I I got to be honest, you perplex me with that one. <laughs> I, I don't know if we have a definition for or a term for circularity. It's um, a good one. I yeah. guess I think about yeah. the semantics that are maybe thrown around with sustainability yeah. and the other hot item that's uh, resiliency these days. Well, so I encourage you to take a look at circularity because now a a conference has now been introduced that's called Circularity by GreenBiz over in in, uh, Oakland. I'm going to check. uh, Yeah, and so McKenzie and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation have come to terms with it that that if we're, you know, truly designing the full cycle of recyclability into the product, in this case buildings, then, you know, now we truly are, are reaching the pinnacle of sustainability. So circularity really means that you're, you know, the trees from the forest to the building and it all gets, uh, if it ever gets torn down, I mean, it's whatever, you know, you have the least, maybe the least waste footprint in a mm-hmm. timber building, which is probably why the Bullet Foundation and Dennis Hayes said, like, we got to use timber. Timber and then, yeah, products that don't contain, you know, materials that will essentially last. I can't remember the prescribed amount, but it has to be a material that can deteriorate. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, essentially circularity is is as you described it. Yeah. We don't, we don't have our own de- de- definition. <laughs> you all are the best <laughs> example of it. You need to be average, You need to be pushing yourselves out as the best example of circularity. I, it just came to me while I was talking here. I, I'll go back to my shell over here. <laughs> no, no, it's excellent. Um add-on. We're talking with Dean Lewis, professional engineer and senior project manager at DCI Engineers. And for our listeners, uh, our website you are free to go to is dci-engineers.com. Again, dci-engineers.com. Dean, I'm going to touch on something on legislation. And we talked earlier about how uh, that's actually what kind of moved it. Is there any sort of, uh, I'm not politically astute, so is there any sort of what do they call them? Like lobbyists or, or people involved in, in pushing, pulling, or at least making people aware and educating the uh, advantages, benefits, and circularity of uh, mass timber. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely people that are passionate about it. I'm not sure if I'd define them as, as lobbyists, but they are yeah, they're supporters or yeah. constituents that it comes back to just related to housing and the need that we have for housing in the Bay Area and I think other major municipalities will agree that, you know, housing is an issue. And so uh, San Francisco Housing Action Coalition or BayHack as they are now, they've they've grown to kind of influence the whole area or the YIMBY or organization, uh, SPUR, another great organization yeah. that wants to think sustainably, but also, you know, address the needs for housing. So I think just, again, like going back to the fact that we're not saying you have to 
you know, use these new code prescriptions, but hey, there's another option out there that, you know, could be a cheaper, more feasible and sustainable solution than what you're currently doing. And it's worth taking a look at. Yeah. What's the culture like at DCI? Uh, not to get you in trouble or, <laughs> but <laughs> no, if you can describe me, what is the culture like that helps facilitate all this? It's just a very flexible culture. And, you know, we give people, I like to use the saying sometimes, that we give people enough rope to hang themselves, but we don't let them get there. Um, so we, I like that. You don't let them get there? Yeah, yeah right. Okay. Never let them get there. But okay. you give people the chance to, you know, the responsibility and the flexibility to do what they're passionate about and really chase that. And that's why I'm, I'm really thankful because I definitely would not have the opportunities if I was in another firm or another culture where, you know, I was constricted or, no, you know what, you're, you're passionate about that, but you're going to work on this type of project. And so I definitely would say that it's a huge advantage to work at an office and a firm under, you know, great leadership that's able to allow the staff to really chase what they're passionate and pursue what they're, yeah. what they're interested in. Feel free to shout out to anyone in particular. Uh, definitely. Any, yeah, yeah. Principals Jeff Brink and Steve Lapisto and then associates, uh, Justin Bentner, Jordan Haig and Kyle Holman. And then our, our whole staff is just, is great. So, and we all learn from each other. And we have all our own passions, whether it's modular or concrete or high-rise or urban planning and working on massive developments. Everyone has their own pursuit that they're interested in. Yeah. How is it working with city officials? Well, that's a really loaded question. But <laughs> it, it, what's your experience working with cities, especially since you're familiar with the Bay Area? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, somewhat loaded, but I'll be I'll be transparent because it's it's good and bad. I mean, there's there's a lot of good things that are happening, but we understand that they are constrained, they are understaffed, and it's really it, it puts a lot of constraints on them and then the industry itself. But I find that when you go into the you know you go into the city and you sit down in the office and you have a face to face conversation with them, it's great. I mean, you can really understand you know what they're worried or concerned about. And we're able to express, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. And I think it's just that face-to-face -face relationship that resolves all the, the, you know, the chatter that might be going on in the background about, you know, the municipalities and how hard it is to permit things because they're under their own constraints. And, you know, totally understand that. Yeah. Let's touch on that face-to-face. -face. It's interesting because we're obviously in the 21st century. And, uh, and here at Stanford, there's so much uh, with uh, just digital and uh, the software and you know, how you can connect with people without actually connecting with them. I value face-to-face -face very much. And I think it's not as prevalent as it was even a few years ago. It's getting, it seems to be getting less. What's your feelings or thoughts on, you know, the face-to-face -face interaction with prospective clients, existing clients, challenges. Well, what's your what's your thought on that sort of eye-to-eye? -eye? Yeah, I think that's definitely something that's changing. I, I probably have a different perspective, though. When I started my career in Spokane, the first couple of years we did, uh, you know, the housing market was shot, so we were doing conveyor projects, actually, getting ore and stuff. And long story short, we were working with clients that were in South Africa, Singapore, Chile, okay. Canada. And so I never met these individuals. I only got emails with pictures of the project when it was done. And it was, needless to say, <laughs> okay, not the yeah. most fulfilling thing. But uh, then later on in my career, I think even now, for me, the face-to-face -face time is critical. I definitely enjoy it, and I, I kind of need it, I feel like. You know, we work with all these technologies these days, you know, and trying to do these new types of construction, modular prefab, and, you know, modeling things to LOD, you know, 350 plus. But really, for a project to be successful, it still comes down to the team and that the relationship that you have with that team. If you're able to trust the individuals, I mean, that's going to give you success. And so I think, yeah, the face-to-face -face time is absolutely critical. 
Excellent. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU 90.1, Stanford University. We want to tell you about KidMob. KID, K-I-D-M-O-B, is a nonprofit mobile kid-integrated design firm guided by a diverse and talented team of designers, architects, contractors, and engineers. KidMob works with young people using project-based learning to address school and community needs. This is done through a variety of workshops, consulting, co-creation of curriculum, and much more. For additional information or to donate, visit kidmob.org. That's kidmob.org. We're talking today with Dean Lewis, professional engineer and senior project manager at DCI Engineers. For more information, you can visit dci-engineers.com. Again, dci-engineers.com. Dean, do you have a favorite quote or mantra you kind of live by or mantras that you kind of live by just to... uh, get you through your thought processes and uh, ways of through life. Sure. Absolutely. I'll, I'm going to have to go back to the quote I said earlier because that, that's not my quote. I can't remember what book I got it from, but it's the uh, the growth-orientated versus okay. goal-orientated. Definitely um, when, I believe it was John Maxwell, one of his books. Oh, okay. But he talks about that, and it's essentially that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, kind of a similar mm-hmm. quote. And I think that's key because in life, you know, you might think when I get this project finished or I get to a certain level or I get this certain accolade, that'll make me happy or that'll fulfill me. And you kind of get to that point and then you realize it's not about that. It's about you actually had more fun during the journey and the project, uh, the sure, process yeah. that you were in or, you know, getting to a certain destination. You know, that was the exciting part and the part that you had to enjoy. And so I think it's just, yeah, enjoying the moment and being in the moment yeah, enjoying the journey. Yeah. Dean, where did you get this uh, sense of insight and wisdom? Uh, you're a young guy, and but it's, it just seems to, it, it transcends your work as a professional engineer. Who would you credit? Your growing up, your family, friends? Yeah. Definitely uh, family, my father, my mom, just give me a good background and good, all the resources I needed. Didn't have, you know, any trouble when I was little and um, then got through, had great mentors in college uh, at my master's school, Dr. Shane Brown, Dr. Dolan, definitely two of the main ones. And then, yeah, getting into DCI and just having great mentors from Spokane with Craig Crowley, Mark Aiden, getting to Seattle with Mark Morligan, and then now to San Francisco under Jeff Brink and just, you know, taking it in from all assets of life, too. I mean, my wife influences me every day and she inspires me. So, yeah, just try and take inspiration from everybody. <laughs> That's for sure. I, I, I followed the map that you just shared with us, and it's outstanding. How about you even as a mentor? Are there any, any people that come to you for counsel, advice, insight? You don't have to I've mentioned names unless you'd like to, but how does that feel for you? It feels weird. Okay. Um, but <laughs> it feels weird. Because <laughs> right. like you said, I'm, I'm still young, relatively yeah. young, and got a long, lot more to go, but I feel like... Uh, you know, you learn a lot more when you have to teach others and mentor. So I, I absolutely embrace the position and, you know, I have been able to sit down with other people and even other industries. I think that's another interesting part. If you sit down with someone in healthcare or a certain tech market, you know, they have a lot different perspective on how things are moving, where the, where the world is headed. And so that's, that's interesting to me as well. Yeah. Go into that a little bit about other industries and how they actually benefit you as an engineer. I think it's just, uh, well, 
being down here in San Francisco, I remember coming down here a few years ago and was just enamored by the culture that is just precipitates around here with everyone that's kind of open. Everyone's very free. It's definitely a work environment. Um, everyone's trying to innovate, trying to pro be progressive and move things forward. I had never been in an environment like that. You know, I mean, as you're younger, you're in college and people are free thinking, but they come into a professional environment and experience that was completely different. And it wasn't an old boys club where it's a bunch of people <laughs> yeah. deciding, okay, you can do this because you did that project or you did this. It's more, you know, free thinking. What can you do? How fast can you do it? And why is it better than the other one? And I just like that attitude and that culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, it comes through just uh, here in the uh, in our studio with you. I'll go back again to um, growing up. Did you see yourself like where if you if you really took a, a look, uh, if it puts you on the spot, just say, I oh, shut up. But where you are now to where those galvanizing moments happen, do you kind of go like, you know what? I kind of saw this all coming in a weird way and I actually manifested it. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. No, okay. it's just. I guess the road is, there's initial points, you know, like I always wanted to come down to California, always wanted to live down here. My sister lived down here and, uh, you know, growing up, always knew I wanted to kind of be in this industry, but never expected to kind of have this path or all of a sudden become, you know, being chosen as spoken at certain events, never expected that, but took every opportunity and just put my best foot forward to, yeah, move on to the next opportunity. Yeah. Charlotte has another question, please. Go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, you've already accomplished a lot in, in terms of just the, the pr different projects that you've been part of. And so where do you think Mass Timber, what's going to be pushing the edge for Mass Timber? What should we all be looking for? Yeah, uh, this is definitely a good question. I think the reason I, I think I believe in Mass Timber so much is because it has the same benefits as prefabrication and modular construction in the terms of, you know, speed and efficiency. And then with the growing supply chain, you know, we're still in the infancy, you know, here in North America. We've, it's only been around for like since 2010, where other countries it's been around for over decades. Um, so that and then plus in our new codes, like I was talking about the 18 stories. But one other thing that a lot of people are not aware of is the USGS, the United States Geological Service, has been taking data on earthquakes that have been occurring around the Bay Area and across the nation. And essentially they have determined that the probability of an occurrence happening, what we design for as engineers, has been, in some cases, too minimal. Mm. And so we need to actually, I, my boss makes a joke that when 2019 hits, earthquakes in the Bay Area are going to get bigger. I believe that 100%. I've heard <laughs> so, a USGS person come over here right after Fukushima. Perfect. And he said Tokyo will experience anywhere between 8 and 10 right. you know, rated earthquakes from now on. Yeah. Frequently. And you've probably seen the articles in the New York Times about buildings being designed for, you know, moment frame, all that sort of stuff. But I guess the biggest thing is earthquakes depend on the building size. So if you're under 85 feet, which is kind of like a podium, like we call it, you'll see forces increase by 20 to 30 percent. But if it's a, you know, our urban infill areas, you got projects that are beyond 85 feet up to, you know, 18, 20 stories or more for those projects you're going to see forces increase by upwards for 50 to 80%, depending on where that building's located. Wow. And so you look at, you know, that occurring at the same time, the codes are allowing for these structures to go up out of mass timber that are a lot lighter inherently by about 50% in comparison to concrete. And so you got to ask yourself, you know, is there going to be this tipping point like you talked about earlier where things are really going to shift and it's, yeah, it's almost... Yeah, lighter be. means cheaper. Yep. 
lighter foundations, lighter lateral system, gravity system, everything. And it's all the perfect circuit or material. <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> yeah, you're on radio, so you can go ahead and plug that, I guess. Um, exactly. I want everybody to go out and start researching that on the Google right circular, now. <laughs> circularity? That's He's what about mass timber, and I'm about circularity, so yeah. it's like yin-yang, okay? There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Dean, is there any uh, anything that we may not have touched on on your show today that you'd like to share with the audience? I think you should get Dennis Hayes on here. He's okay. amazing. If he, yeah, he, he went to be, Stanford. Yep, he did. <laughs> yeah, he's incredible. You read his book. He's just he's the full package. He's he's got amazing ideas, and I think just yeah, the sustainability aspect we touched on a little bit, and then anyone that was talks about uh, transportation, I think, is another key issue that. You know, you look at what Trump did and killed the bill for, you know, the high-speed train in California. That was, was terrible because you look at the housing issues that we have. And imagine if you had a train that, you know, moved at five to 600 miles per hour and can go from Bakersfield up to the Bay Area in about an hour. You open up a whole new housing market that you're able to, you know, have workers come from. Well, so. I have a comment back on that. Yeah. Is that I think that the best technology was not yet chosen for the high-speed train, and so I think that actually the fact that he killed it could be a good thing because now be. the, the state-of-the-art can be uh, manifested and manufactured right here in Silicon Valley. I'd rather be, you know, having a, a new train system versus, versus um, you know, something we need to buy that's actually old technology. So there you have it. I think it's a big opportunity. It is an opportunity. Oh. And I think the, the infrastructure spending also needs to increase. I mean, there's just, there's not enough investment. In well, we can have circular bonds. We've got that figured out. <laughs> wow. That's, uh, for our listeners, whoever can count how many times the word circular or circularity, circularity was used yeah. during the whole, sh whole show. <laughs> wow. We're really going there. Last question, for, at least for, to, for today, Dean, is what kind of legacy are you looking, if you can do that, it's, you're too far ahead or too, too early in the game, but if you really want to step back and go, you know, here's what kind of what I want to be recognized and known for and, and how I contributed. That's, yeah, it's a good question because, yeah, like I said, I'm still young, kind of almost don't even know, but I guess if I were to step back at this point, I would just be like to be remembered for, you know, being passionate about, you know, my work and leaving a mark on certain projects to people who could maybe walk by and look at a project and say, oh, yeah, I remember that one. And there was this this crazy engineer that wanted to push the envelope <laughs> a little bit and kind of do things that were outside the box or outside the code. But, you know, they were able to get it done. And that would be that'd be good enough for me. Excellent. Dean, it's been an honor and pleasure having you on our Thank show. You Thank guys. you very Thank much. You I hope you consider coming on uh, sometime soon. OK. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Modern Architect, I'm Tom Dior. Our guest today has been Dean Lewis, professional engineer and senior project manager at DCI Engineers. Dean developed unparalleled project experience in prefabrication, modular, and mass timber structures. He quickly grew into a leadership role under the guidance of principals and associates. Dean was the subject of a feature article in the San Francisco Business Journal for his perspective on how mass timber is revolutionizing the building industry. For more information, feel free to visit dci-engineers.com. Again, dci-engineers.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at KZSU Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California and on location throughout California. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Hyagi. 
And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.